This is Cinema Smorgasbord presents How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, The Cinema of Steve Buscemi, a podcast about the work of beloved actor Steve Buscemi. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the great Liam O'Donnell. Today we're going to be looking at the action classic Con Air from the year 1997. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm pretty good, Doug. How are you? Liam, we're recording this on the 4th of July, America's birthday. I know. I, I wanted to highlight that so that people would understand my commitment to this show. Uh, and my commitment to you that I was willing to sacrifice my holiday just to record this thing and that uh, your response to that has been to harass me all day long and just be mean to me on Facebook. It's crazy. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. And it's the day after my birthday. Also, It's the day after your birthday. It was your birthday, then America's birthday. Now, I bet you don't have any conflicted feelings about America's birthday. No, everyone knows that I'm a true blue American. I'm committed to patriotism. I really think we did a good job when we did the things we did to get mm. us here. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to remain vague about what those things are. Four more uh, years. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I've always actually hated July 4th because it was like no one wanted to come to a party on July 3rd because they all wanted to have their barbecues on July oh, 4th. So I my birthday was that. always bad, and I would just pretend July 4th was for me. Um, and it's a shame. I, I still have this like weird thing about my birthday, and it stresses my wife out. She goes out of her way to try to make my birthday special, Aww. but she's competing with the birth of America. Like that's what she's competing with every mm-hmm. year. It's it's a lot of pressure. For, you know, for nothing but my ego. You know, Liam. Usually at the beginning of our podcast, we just we talk a lot of bullshit. Like the stuff that we're talking mm-hmm. about doesn't really play into the theme of the episode proper, but this time I feel like it's okay for us to talk about the 4th of July because the movie we're going to talk about today is a very, very American movie. Sure. Yeah, I think that's fair. It might be the most American movie, but we'll get to that a little bit later. You know, it's uh, so that, would be, that would be Independence Day. Thank you. Come Can on. you do the speech from Independence Day for me, Liam? No, I cannot. How about the culminating moment where he says, this is our Independence Day? Nope. I don't Thoughts on it. Bill Pullman? Uh, I like Bill Pullman. Uh, he's no Bill Paxton, but I like him. Do you, now that's a. I know that people have the you know, people sometimes confuse Bill Pullman and Bill Paxton, and I imagine that everyone has a preference for which one that they most prefer. But Liam, why did you say that? Why don't you like Bill Pullman? Uh, I do like Bill <laughs> Pullman. That's actually what I just said is that I like him. No, I don't think so. I don't think if people listen back that that's what you said at all. <laughs> Bill Paxton was a more creative guy, probably right, because he directed some movies. Well, yeah, I mean, I like Bill Paxton's performances. I think it's a mix. I think people just know him for uh, certain sorts of performances, but he's actually done a lot of different stuff. And he also, oh, wow, my daughter is being very loud. Um, he he also, uh, I have a friend who is a, a MC, and uh, Bill Paxton's uh, kid was into my friend's music. Hey, that's cool. And Bill Paxton went out of his way to like connect with him, and then they like stayed friendly with each other and when like oh, wow. you know not like buddies like i don't want to exaggerate but was like friendly with this dude and i just thought like that just shows a certain amount of humanity like like sure like he's treating my friend like he's a big deal because he's a, a you know a musician mm-hmm. but bill paxton's obviously a bigger deal he was in aliens you know what i mean like to act like yeah we're on the same level we're both artists is i think actually a respect that a lot of uh especially bigger name actors have trouble with you know even though they might respect the art of other people it's hard to like treat 
other artists as equals in that way, you know, and, and, you know, my man's always felt like really respected and, 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 you know, friendly with him. And I, I always thought that painted well of his character. Liam frailty. Love it. It's great. It's, it's a good movie, right? I mean, it's not perfect, you know, but I, I think it stands up overall. Agreed. Lots of Steve Buscemi news, Liam, over the last few weeks since our most recent episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. One of the things that has occurred is the release of the film The King of Staten Island. Now, this is a movie starring the controversial SNL cast member Pete Davidson. But what's notable, aside from it starring Pete Davidson, is that it features Steve Buscemi playing a fireman in it. I I didn't even know this, Liam, until I was doing a little research for this show. I have not seen the movie as of yet. I know some people liked it very, very much. It is part of this kind of unique aspect of the year 2020, where a movie that originally was supposed to go to theaters ended up kind of going straight to video because there was no other way for it to get out into the world. But uh, there has been a lot of interviews with Steve Buscemi over the last few weeks about this. And he said that he not only was very happy to be part of the movie, but that it was kind of, I guess, a wistful experience to be able to play a fireman for the first time ever, considering that he was a fireman and, I guess, very kind of notoriously after 9-11 actually returned to working as a fireman to try to help out. It's it's interesting to see a, an actor like Steve Buscemi, who is so beloved, kind of his his career kind of come full circle where he's able to play some, uh, you know, a role that he actually was in real life. I agree. And it's a role that seems to be made for him. I mean, in a sense, it was made for him because he expressed interest in being in sure. and, and they expanded it because of him. But just the idea of like 9-11, Pete Davidson, Staten Island, like there's just so many resonances with uh, Steve Buscemi's own life mm-hmm. uh, that like I just think it makes sense that he would be in it, you know, and maybe it makes too much sense. Maybe that's not something people would have thought of or maybe. You know, if I'm Judd Apatow, maybe I'd think Steve Buscemi's too big a too too big a star for this role. But but you know, I think at, when you get to the level of someone like Steve Buscemi, hopefully, what that means is you get to choose the things you want to do because they sound interesting, and you're not trapped based upon budget or right. you know star power, quote unquote, whatever that means. It's it's interesting that I think when people picture in their mind what a fireman looks like, that they're not necessarily thinking of someone who looks like Steve Buscemi, which I guess is just, I guess it's a representative of the kind of pop culture or mainstream view of what firemen are and what they look like. But I would love to see Steve Buscemi play like, you know, maybe in a dramatic role where he plays a fireman, maybe even something. It's interesting that even in the films that he's made that have had autobiographical elements that he's never worked that into it. And that this is the first time he's ever played a role that is so reflective of something he did in his real life. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, we've watched some things now and we know there's more to come that are kind of connected to Steve Buscemi's life. Yeah. But I think just looking at his career, we also know he spent a lot of his career doing the things that people wanted from him, you know, sort of, sort of, uh, playing the roles that were offered to him Sure, and, and not that those are bad roles, but I wonder if he, in a sense, wasn't pictured that he wasn't pictured as like a down to earth fellow, you know? Mm-hmm. And so... I'm glad to see he was doing it. I hope he, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I would love him to not quite work at the level of like Eric Roberts, but I'd love for him to work more than he is, you know, like he's, he's definitely still acting, but I I don't know. I love him in everything we've watched and everything that I watch on my own. He's always a bright spot. So if it turned out that for whatever reason, he's got uh, another wind and he's doing like three movies a year, four movies a year. I would love that, you know? It's uh, it's interesting that on this episode, 
we're going to be talking about Steve Buscemi at maybe, you know, it's it's going to be in the realm of his most mainstream period. In that, you know, even right. though he does not star in this movie, and he did not star in Armageddon a couple of years after this, that, that in terms of when people see him in this movie, Con Air, they know exactly who this actor is. They recognize him from his other uh, well-known roles. And that that he has specifically been put in this movie because he's Steve Buscemi, because he plays these sort of quirky roles. And that they actually play on kind of his public persona with the role he plays in that movie. Uh, and I feel like we're, we're pretty far removed from that. But I think even though we are removed from that, that Steve Buscemi as an actor has such a mainstream cachet that that he has compared to even a lot of actors of that time period who had that same sort of, of visibility, there's kind of a really strong, positive feeling in the consciousness of moviegoers when it comes to him as an actor. Like, people love Steve Buscemi. Well, and I think this is, to me, emblematic of a certain kind of Steve Buscemi role, which is a not large, but un- but certainly unforgettable role. Yes. That, like, he's he, he is the garnish that will stick with you f- after the movie is over. And so much so that like, uh, you know, of the many characters in this movie, only one name sticks with me. Now I know part of that is because famously there's a band, a hardcore band from the two thousands that named themselves Garland Green because right. of this, you know. <laughs> but uh but still I don't think it's just that. I just think it's he's the memorable character. You know, uh Poe kinda sticks out, but like it could also fade from my memory a little bit. But like there's just something about and and in a way, his role is kind of superfluous. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't affect the plot. But I, there was something about that in the like. There's something about his performance in this movie, and we'll get into it in a sec, y'all. But there's something very '90s about him even having this role. <laughs> yeah, know? no kidding, no kidding. And you're right; it is a kind of a superfluous performance. Uh, well, actually, I shouldn't say performance, but the role itself. But be that as it may, it's also a, a performance that was obviously seen as sort of a linchpin for the movie to the point where it's the stinger of the movie itself, right? I mean, he's the right. last face that you see. Um, and it, in terms of odd, strange humor, he certainly is something that the movie centers around. In the midst of all of this Steve Buscemi news, Liam, I thought in the opening segment today, we could take a moment to talk about something that I discovered when I was doing a little research uh, yesterday, which is that a few years ago, Steve Buscemi sat down with the Criterion Collection and went through his top 10 films of all time. And I have that here in front of me, Liam, and I thought maybe we just go through that quickly. Uh, I think it sure. is kind of representative of some of his interests. We know that he's a very creative person. We know that he's a filmmaker himself. Um, I always, I'm always a little bit surprised. Maybe I shouldn't be, but you know, we we kind of put actors and creative people that we see on a mainstream level into these boxes in terms of what we might expect for them to like. I guess that might be a little unfair. But when you see the diversity of the films on this list, you remember, oh, wait, Steve Buscemi is a very intelligent and uh, empathetic and interesting creative force and that his interests would go well beyond the same creative forces that would create, say, a movie like Con Air. Yeah, definitely. Liam, I'm just going to go through this list quickly. Uh, it is, again, 10 films, Steve Buscemi's top 10 films. They are uh, Brute Force from 1947, Billy Liar from 1963, Symbio's Psycho Taxoplasm uh, from 1968, Salesman from 1969, The Honeymoon Killers from 1970, A Woman Under the Influence from 1974, The Vanishing from 1988, My Own Private Idaho from 1991, Man Bites Dog from 1992, and Shortcuts from 1993. Now, Liam, does anything stand out on this list for you? Well, I'll be honest, there's a bunch of stuff on here I haven't seen before. Which is so. fair, absolutely. 
Yeah, I you know you you I'm sure are well aware, having listened to the episode, that I'm a big my own private Idaho fan. We mm-hmm. covered that on Cinepunks. Um, I very much enjoy a woman under the influence and uh, man bites dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still haven't caught the vanishing, and I know I need to. It's on my watch list. Um, but there's other stuff on here. You know, I don't really know anything about honeymoon killers or symbiopsychotexoplasm. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a few things on here that are kind of outside my realm. And <clears throat> I like Robert Altman, but I've never loved shortcuts. Uh, uh, although I'm not a huge Altman fan. So maybe I, maybe that's something you got to be a real Altman person to love. But I, I always kind of thought it was okay. I love shortcuts, and it kind of feels like the sort of movie that Steve Buscemi should be in. You know what I mean? Right, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Speaking specifically about The Honeymoon Killers, uh, he's quoted here in this article. It says, This 1970 independent classic is from writer-director Leonard Castle, who took over after Martin Scorsese was let go. Based on a true story, it held particular interest for me because the killers at one point decide to retire to suburban Valley Stream, Long Island, the town where I primarily grew up and directed my first film, Trees Lounge. So I like the idea that the movies he chose here aren't just movies that he loves for um, maybe the content of it or the style or whatever, but that some of them might have actual biographical connections to to his love of cinema. Yeah, I appreciate that as well. And uh, it kind of speaks to his connection to Trees Lounge, which we sort of uh, talked about a little bit uh, when we covered it. But, but to know that it's not just... Uh, the familiarity of it, but he connects it to this other film that's also important to him is really interesting. I will say the movie that does kind of jump out from the list for me. I mean, I guess it would be the two movies that are more genre ish, which would be the vanishing and man bites dog, but man bites dog in particular. Now for those listening who haven't seen man bites dog, it is a a part of the criterion collection. It was on the criterion channel. I don't know if it still is, um, but it's a very rough movie in a lot of ways. Um, it, It does, it is also very much ahead of its time. It's about a serial killer who's being fil- filmed by a documentary crew. And as the movie goes along, that documentary crew gets pulled into the crimes. It's sort of an extremely dark, violent comedy, uh, but one that I think has aged incredibly well, even if it is actually uh, quite disturbing in a lot of ways. You mentioned that you enjoy that movie as well, uh, Liam, uh, if, uh, if enjoy is the right word. Um, it. I don't know if the sensibility that we've seen from... Steve Buscemi's creative output that he's been in control of reflects that sort of dark comedic elements, but maybe it does. I mean, I guess you could see even something like uh, like his Coen Brothers work. There is it isn't that far removed from something like Man Bites Dog. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely different, but it's not yeah. that far, and it's certainly the extremity of it. He's been in other people's things that were at least at the time considered also pretty extreme mm-hmm. i think maybe in retrospect something like reservoir dogs is like not as mm, uh out there as i think it was seen at the time isn't that interesting he reservoir dogs came out in 1992 and yep. man bites dog came out in 92 thoughts liam cool <laughs> it's a big year for dogs don't you think yeah wow what a great insight doug the vanishing liam I need to watch it. I know. Yeah, you should see The Vanishing. It's very dark. But I'll tell you what, and I'm, I'm not just talking to you, Liam. I'm also talking to our listeners. They remade The Vanishing as an American movie just a few years after it came out, Liam. And it starred Kiefer Sutherland, Canada's own Kiefer Sutherland. And uh, don't see that. <laughs> see the original version instead. Okay. <laughs> That's a little lesson from me, Doug Tilly, to you, Liam O'Donnell.
Liam, I appreciate that. If you had to put together your top ten favorite movies, I'm putting you on the spot here. <laughs> Im- impossible. I couldn't no, possibly. I, I'm I'm not going to ask you to do that. Uh, that would be really difficult to do, even if you would rush over to Letterboxd and maybe try to figure it out. But what movie on that list, you know, and the the wide scheme of your favorite movies, do you think would be most surprising to people? That's a good question. Um, What's a movie that you love that people probably wouldn't think of you loving? I don't know, because I don't know what the representation of myself is. Like, if you see me as a primarily a genre person, right, because I talk a lot about horror and exploitation, then, you know, they might be surprised by, you know, I'd probably put a Miyazaki movie on there. Um, They might be surprised by... I'm now I'm trying to go through my 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 head list and see if there's something <laughs> on there. Well, like I I really like um three colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm always in a conflict inside if I like blue or red more of the mm-hmm. three colors trilogy. Uh, white is good too, but I think my favorite is either blue or red depending on my mood. Um, and honestly, like a a movie that impacted me a lot as a kid that I don't think it would be in my top 10, but it is often in my significant movies list, is uh, The Secret of Nim. Oh, interesting. I, I've probably watched it over and over and over again. And and that's not to say, like, if if we were listing the greatest, I wouldn't put it on a greatest list, but a favorite in that I've watched it enough times that it's still, but it still appeals to me, uh, it might make it onto a list because uh, it was really important to me as a kid. It was something that really uh, stuck with me. Um, but a lot of things on my list are not, well, on my list wouldn't be a surprise because it's like, you know, horror or weird stuff like Holy Mountain or like uh, exploitation stuff like Assault on Precinct 13 or sure. Vigilante or something like that. Part of the pleasure that I get from our Cinema Smorgasbord project is that it's, it, it by definition and by the themes of some of these podcasts has meant that it pushes us outside of our box a little bit. Our, you know, our, whether it be our genre film box or, uh, you know, the post-1970 films box, it forces us to engage with movies that A, we wouldn't necessarily engage with otherwise, but B, are also genres that maybe we haven't explored as much. It's something that we've talked about on a few episodes so far, which is that this is not our wheelhouse necessarily. Uh, this The one we're t- talking about today is sort of my wheelhouse, and probably yours as well to some extent, but um, but I mean, we're we're getting an opportunity to talk about sort of sometimes dry dramas, and these are movies that I'm gaining a better appreciation for out of necessity because we need to be able to talk about them. Yeah, I think it's one of the keys of us going of choosing. I mean, it might seem a little redundant how many different actors we're doing shows on. Sure, but I think for us, it's helpful because it gives us a bigger variety. Just. Between Steve Buscemi and Carol Kane, we're looking at an interesting grouping of films. Uh, whereas, you know, the Jackie Chan show is a lot of fun, but my guess is not so much so far, but into the future, <laughs> a lot of the movies will be pretty like down the middle things that we we definitely enjoy. You know, <laughs> speaking of things that we down the middle maybe enjoy, Liam. Today we're going to be talking about. Con Air from the year 1997. Liam, before we j- jump into our first break and then we come back and talk about that movie, do you remember when Con Air was released? Do you remember when that summer hit and these big action movies were all the rage? Yes, I do. Uh, I was uh, just graduated out of high school in 1997. 
And and you remember this movie hitting theaters? Do you remember if you were excited about it? Were, were these the kind of movies that you would have gravitated towards at that time? No, I mean, <laughs> at least with this movie, no. I thought it looked stupid. I mm. um, I had kind of had my fill of Nick Cage at this point. Um, I just wasn't, you know, my relationship with Nick Cage started with Raising Arizona and um. What's the vampire movie he's in? Vampire's Kiss. Vampire's Kiss. Stuff like that. You know, even Moonstruck, which I saw way too young to appreciate in any <laughs> real way. Uh, so that by the time the 90s came around and um, Nick Cage is becoming an action star, I just thought, that looks stupid. I just I, I couldn't get excited about it. And I was kind of alone in that. I had friends who went to see it when it came out and enjoyed it. But uh, for me... The end of senior year going into freshman year in college was when I started to want to watch more independent cinema and when I was coming back to horror. You know, I I talked before on this show about how my childhood I was obsessed with horror. I had gotten out of it a little bit. And then college, I was starting to get back into more horror of specific kinds. I was uh, starting to check out European stuff that I had missed and things like that. This would have been right around the period where... I was having kind of my greater awakening when it comes to cinema as a whole. So, you know, I would be devouring whatever I could. Again, for those who haven't listened to a lot of episodes of our show, I grew up in Newfoundland. My uh, The availability of a lot of movies to me were extremely limited. Uh, it didn't open up until I moved to Ontario in the early 2000s. So for me, I just watched whatever was available. So, uh, you know, at this time, I probably would have been watching a lot of horror and a lot of international films. But uh, Con Air still, I have to admit held a lot of appeal to me. And probably that was because of the mix of actors that are in it and the fact that it was this kind of ensemble, a ridiculous ensemble in a lot of ways. Uh, let's take our first break, Liam. It seems like we're, we might have a, a controversial take on this Con Air movie. Let's take our first break. When we return, we're going to talk about Con Air from the year 1997. Join us after this. It's summer. Check your weapons. Take your seat. Isn't that your car? And say your prayers. From Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer of The Rock, Nicholas Cage, John Cusack, John Malkovich. Where are they going to land this thing? How do you feel about the blackjack tables? On June 6th. Directed by Simon West. Thank you, and have a pleasant flight. Newly paroled ex-con and former U.S. Ranger Cameron Poe finds himself trapped in a prisoner transport plane when the passenger sees control. It's 1997's Con Air, directed by Simon West, who also directed Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, The General's Daughter, and the remake of The Mechanic. It was written by Scott Rosenberg, who also wrote High Fidelity, or the adaptation of High Fidelity, the remake of Gone in 60 Seconds, and most notably, Kangaroo Jack. Uh, Liam, Kangaroo Jack. It's a film. It is a film. Liam, did you know that the uh, kangaroo in that movie, which on the poster was wearing sunglasses and had sort of a unique look to it, apparently that the kangaroo only appears like that for a few minutes in the movie in a dream sequence. That's what I've heard, Doug, but uh, I don't remember. Even though I've seen it, I can't remember anything about it. I remember when Kangaroo Jack came out that people were very upset at, at that movie. It seemed like there was a lot of hate. Maybe it's one of the movies that I most remember there being this general sentiment of dislike before it even came out. 
I think that's true, actually. There was just a real pushback. Um, I'm trying to think. I think when I saw it, it was it was a rental. It wasn't in the theater. And it was mm-hmm. on at, like, a party. So I don't think I really paid attention to it. Con Air was uh, in the midst of these big summer blockbusters, Liam, that had uh, interesting ensemble casts. Usually a big action star at the front. And then supported by all of these uh, really kind of quirky, interesting actors... This movie has a lot of well-known actors in it, including John Malkovich as Cyrus the Virus Grissom. Uh, Ving Rhames, Cole Meany uh, is in this movie. Danny Trejo, um, MC Ganey is here briefly. Uh, Dave Chappelle makes a memorable appearance in this movie. And of course, Steve Buscemi as Garland Green, uh, who you refer to in the opening segment. Uh, sort of a, I guess, Hannibal Lecter-ish serial killer. Maybe less... Um, intelligent than Hannibal Lecter, but certainly is is meant to be uh, a unique-looking and very dangerous individual. But we'll get to him in just a little bit. Liam, you have conflicted feelings on this blockbuster movie. Tell me about them. I wouldn't say my feelings are conflicted. What I would say is... Mm, that's what you said. You no, told me conflicted. No, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, I, <laughs> what I find confusing is um, people's deep, deep, deep love for this movie. Uh I think it's pretty fun. When it came out, I was not interested. It didn't look interesting to me. I was more stoked on other things that came out in 1997. And then afterwards, I just didn't feel a lot of need to revisit. And I didn't until, I think, after college. And I remember finishing it thinking, that's it? That's what we're all so excited about? I I don't understand. Uh, On rewatch, it is a lot more fun, I think, than my memory uh, allowed me to realize. I think that... uh, it has a certain pace, and I think an underrated performance in the film for me was uh, John Cusack, who is the FBI agent who most, uh, or he's not FBI, he's the prison's agent who most identifies with Poe and doesn't want whatever. He, he's kind of fun. He notoriously, by the way, Liam hated making this movie. Yeah, I, I'm not that surprised, honestly, but I, I think mm-hmm. he was he's fine in it, and and I like him and Poe interacting. Um, I think there's a lot of stock put into are bad guys in this film that uh, mm-hmm. whether it's Ving Rhames or uh, John Malkovich, that there's something like so exciting about them and it just doesn't click for me. They're fine, but I, I'm, you know, when they introduce each of these gentlemen and it's kind of like uh, we're learning about the stats on Mortal Kombat characters, <laughs> it just doesn't work for me. It's, it's, it strikes me as painfully corny um, and the sort of information dump that I just don't want to see in a movie anymore maybe i don't know if it would have bothered me back in 1997 the way it does now but it, i don't love it um but that being said while there are other elements of the movie that i find kind of stupid it's still entertaining i don't dislike the movie um but i still still to this day 2020 have friends who would put this in their top 10 action movies of all time and i find that untenable like i cannot <laughs> i cannot even fathom that just just john woo alone makes it so i can't put this movie in the top 20 (laughs) of action movies you know what i mean like it's just not there for me um but is it a fun watch sure if i was at a Nicolas cage marathon and this came on that would be fine i think it's a it's a great uh uh time and i think with a crowd it'd be a lot of fun but who boy it does not it, it it is for me an interesting uh, memory piece from a certain time and place. It is not a long-standing film that 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 uh, I could praise throughout time. It's just not interesting. It's just not that for me. And and again, I don't say that to belittle anyone who loves it. It's just one of those movies that 
I always thought, well, if I if I give it a more of a chance, I'll finally see what everyone loves so much, and, and I still don't see it. I find this movie relentlessly entertaining. Like, I find almost every element of it entertaining, uh, and mostly, I think, intentionally so. I do think there's a element of people who watch Con Air and think that the comedic parts of it are more unintentional than intentional, which I think is a real misreading. And that even comes down to Nicolas Cage's ridiculous accent and hair in this movie. I think all of that is very intentionally ridiculous. Though I have to be honest, Liam, this time around, even though I still really, really love this movie, I find the conceit behind what happens to Nicolas Cage a little hard to believe. The idea that he returns back to the U.S. as this U.S. ranger, goes to meet his uh, wife, um, who is pregnant, and has to fight three people um, who, who try to accost him outside of a bar. He accidentally kills them, one of them in self-defense and then gets sent to prison for a decade. It just it does. Maybe it's just because we know how the U.S. justice system treats military people and police officers. And maybe that's very stark in the year 2020. It's just hard to believe that he would be in prison for a decade. I think the decade is the unbelievable part as far as what yeah. happens to him. You know, famously Nicky Money from uh, the band Horror Show, and he's now in that band Nothing. He went to prison for three years for uh, killing a guy at a Blink-182 concert, and that dude was armed. So, you know, whatever. Mm. But I think, I really think it was only three years. I mean, people know him more than me, probably could give you the exact number, but it was definitely not a decade, not even close to a decade. So the idea that a military guy would get a heavier sentence than this, uh, you know, uh, rough kid from uh, North Philly. I, I just don't buy that either. Um, also, the idea that one could spend a decade in prison and uh, come out squeaky clean completely is just as hard to <laughs> yeah. imagine because we all know that the that um, you know prisons are rough and they're designed to be rough. It's not. Mm-hmm. I think the when we say prisons are rough, it's like because they're filled with criminals. It's like, yeah, okay, that's part of it, but also it's an environment where people are often in it in a situation where they have no future and in order to get what little power they can in that environment they will do inhuman things in order to have some comfort power whatever you know what i mean so the idea that he spends his whole decade and he comes out this model prisoner or whatever let alone there's just so many situations in this movie where he does the least obvious thing and it's supposed to be heroic. And I, I don't know that that works for me the whole the whole film, especially because the film really wants you to have two feelings, right? That these criminals that he is um, sort of in opposition to, these are the worst of the worst. These are true monsters. Mm-hmm. But then also the DEA agent, basically a monster too, although we're supposed to have some appreciation for him at the end of the movie. And I, I just don't, if we're supposed to have some amount of sympathy for some of these characters, it's really hard to turn it off and on. You know, it's yeah. pretty easy mm-hmm. to turn it off for Danny Trejo because his uh, rapist character is played up in uh, a way that made me very uncomfortable, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but not all of these criminals are, are uh, to me, clearly anything other than people in a system that, I'm, that suddenly I'm supposed to be somewhat ambivalent about them being slaughtered. Like if Poe wasn't there, we could just blow the whole plane up and that'd be like, fine. Not that big a deal. You know what I mean? That that, no, that doesn't quite work for me. And then the only character who's one of these hardcore criminals who has any sort of arc is our man Garland Green. Apparently because he didn't kill one little girl, it's kind of yeah, cool that he killed all these other little girls. It's, there's <laughs> Again, I don't need Con Air to be moral. Don't get me wrong, guys. I don't need it to be woke <laughs> or moral or ethical. That's not what I need. But 
if you're going to play off those emotions, if you're going to have that be part of the plot, I'd love some consistency. And I think the the movie can't figure itself out, uh, and it can't figure out what the what the sort of moral stakes are for any of these people, other than that Poe is the hero and his mullet gets to blow in the wind, you know. Um, and that's fine, like great for Nick Cage, but it doesn't. It it's not my favorite way of telling this sort of story. It's it's the kind of action film with a conservative ideology that is explicit, right? Because you have a Black Panther-ish character here played by Ving Rhames, who's supposed to be incredibly intelligent and writes books, but he's still put in the same category as John Malkovich, who is a psychopath. And um, and they even kind of mock him a little bit, uh, Ving Rhames' character, I mean, about like what his, his intentions are. Uh, and that he hates white people and that sort of thing. I mean, and and it just there's a lot of tone deaf aspects of it. But I also think that this is a movie that doesn't necessarily care that much about that political ideology yeah. outside of the idea that there are good guys, there are bad guys, and the bad guys are without question bad for the most part, and the good guys are without question good. And then they have a few characters that kind of dip into both sides. But like you said, Steve Buscemi's character is really interesting because if one character just spent a couple of seconds talking about his background in a little more detail, saying, you know, he killed a bunch of three-year-olds, then you wouldn't be able to have all those kind of fun, sympathetic moments that come later on in the movie. It's just information that is implied but left out that allows us to, like, laugh at this character basically running free at the end. Well, and it it's really emblematic of the '90s, right? Like the '90s was a time where we we criminalized young black men to the extent that exactly. they were inhuman monsters, but we fetishized serial killers and kind of found them mm-hmm. a little sexy and whatever. So, um, you know, uh, something like Natural Born Killers, we we kind of feel for them, but something like Boys in the Hood, it's like you know, it didn't elicit the sympathy from white America that was intended by the movie. You know, so I I think. Uh, I think in this case, it's like the the morality of this is is a little murky, which is fine. I, I again, I love a good murky morality, but in this case, I think the film wants you to have some investment in Nick Cage's character as like a force for good, and I think it's not that clear to me. Now, the time that Con Air came out in 1997, it might be, and maybe uh, this might be a controversial statement to some extent, but if you think that 1996, Independence Day was released, uh, timely, <laughs> talking about that right now, and then, like, that was such a massive summer blockbuster movie, 1997 was all about summer blockbusters, and I think that played out for the rest of the decade, and probably right up to this current day, but 1997, for me, boy, the the, the scope of these action movies that were coming out were just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Do you remember as a, you know, someone in your late teens around that time period, what are your feelings about summer blockbusters? Do you have a favorite summer blockbuster from that time period? Well, it's hard to say from that time. I mean, I will say um, I was pretty stoked on face off when it came out. I think um, I still have an appreciation for it, but um, it's just hard because it's not my favorite of his movies. You know, it's, mm-hmm. I think it gets a little overrated because it's American, because it has Cage and Travolta. You know what I mean? Like, there are aspects of it that appeal to uh, American audiences that kind of builds it up, but it's not, for me, as great as some of the other options you know what i mean well well let's explore that just a little bit you were talking about john woo mm-hmm. we're talking about face off mm-hmm. now face off came out the very same month 
as Con Air. So this was like the month of Nicolas Cage uh, performances. Um, Face Off is a movie that I have a lot of time for, but like you, I wouldn't necessarily put it in my top three John Woo movies. What are the movies that you think Face Off pales in comparison to in his filmography? Uh, the Killer, Hard Boiled, uh, Better Tomorrow 1 and 2, Bullet in the Head. Um, I actually, okay, so this is a this uh-huh. is a controversial one. I even like his Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. Yeah, Hard Target is great. Yeah, but I think people would prefer Face Off to it to a large extent, and I don't. And that, again, that doesn't mean I don't like Face Off. I'm just saying I just love Hard Target. I just think it's it is, for me, my favorite Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, maybe? I don't know. I, I still really like Bloodsport, so it's probably those two. I think I have a lot of time for Face Off because it's just too much. You know, it just felt like he had John Woo was at his had his most credibility. He had these two big stars at the center of it. Has this ridiculous idea that even now seems completely out of control for a mainstream Hollywood movie. And then he was just allowed to go buck wild and just do whatever he wanted. And and it meant that it's overstuffed and it's too much and it's overlong. And the action scenes, you know, it culminates in that boat chase. I mean, it's right. it's a really ridiculous movie. I love it, but it's not, it's the opposite of tight. And also I think it led to, and this might be controversial now, though a few years ago it wouldn't have been, it led to the bloatedness in his movies right. that makes parts of Mission Impossible 2 a little difficult to watch. And I know that the public opinion of Mission Impossible 2 is starting to turn around, and I think rightfully so to a certain extent. I think a lot of the ridiculousness in it is very intentional, and it, it plays kind of, it's a lot of fun. But I tell you, I watched, I rewatched Mission Impossible 2 maybe a year ago, and by the end of it, I was just like, I'm just exhausted by this movie. It just, especially watching it after the first one, because it's such a different tone. It's just not for me. I guess my tolerance mm. for that sort of thing has gone down, and so in retrospect, I don't really love it. I, I will say, unfortunately, because of a person I was dating at the time, I saw Titanic twice in the theater, um, mm-hmm. even though I don't love that movie. Um, this is also when Men in Black came out. Loved Men in Black when it came out. Uh, Fifth Element. I mean, some massive movies mm-hmm. came out in 1997. I saw, I mean, I saw this... Fifth Element twice that summer. Uh, I think it was a summer movie, but I definitely saw it twice when it came out in the theater because I was so mm-hmm. stoked on it. Um, Starship Troopers? Starship Troopers, which is really big for me. Um, unfortunately, also saw Batman and Robin. Kind of regret that in retrospect. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's another movie that it's, everyone loves it now, Liam. It's all been turned around. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's no knock on on Schumacher at all, actually. But for me, I don't. You know, since we're since we're carving up some sacred cows, let me just say, I think Falling Down is a really bad movie too. I'm not a fan of that one. Um, I might agree with you. It's I right. might agree with you. I'm not sure about that one. I have to rewatch it. Uh, but I wanted to get to this important thing, which is 1997 was when, because it was in the wake of Scream and it was the release of Scream Two, we were starting sure. to see the horror movie as blockbuster more often. Mm. Like that, that was a thing in the 80s, but it had kind of gone gone away for some of the 90s. And between Scream Two and I know what you did last summer. I was more excited on horror movies than I was on big action movies. You know what I mean? So uh, I'm not surprised Con Air, I didn't have the time for Con Air that I had for I Know What You Did Last Summer because I just, I wanted that. I wanted those horror movies more. Right. Um, but People sometimes forget how out of the mainstream horror movies were right. before Scream brought it back. Right, that they had been, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street is a was a watermark, but come eighty nine or ninety one, that is not the case anymore. With even the few exceptions that did well monetarily, were still seen as a different thing, and that scream was really like a 
cultural moment that I think it's hard to downplay. So get, let's get back to Conair, uh, since we haven't really talked about it in any detail. Now, one of the things that people remember most about Conair is that central Nicolas Cage performance as Cameron Poe. It is interesting because I don't think at this time, this would have been post-leaving Las Vegas, Nicolas Cage was a respected dramatic actor. Um, and also, I think a lot of people would have seen him as somewhat ridiculous at the time, even though that was a very dramatic performance in Leaving Las Vegas. My favorite movie at, of this time period, of Nicolas Cage's, is a movie that I still have a lot of time for, which is Honeymoon in Vegas, where, which is a sure. completely bonkers romantic comedy, which has Nicolas Cage at his Nicolas Cageiest. I think you can almost interpret the character in this movie with his ridiculous accent as like a... Uh, if you consider... Uh, Raising Arizona as the prequel to this movie to a certain extent. Nah, I'm just being ridiculous here. But his character here is so silly, but also, you know, an action movie performance. This is the year that kind of cemented Nicolas Cage as someone who could be an action star. What do you think of his performance in this movie? It's fine. Um, I get that there's a sense of humor to it, and that you're supposed to... There's a tone to the movie that maybe doesn't click with everyone, where it's it's... It is silly. It's kind of it's kind of treating itself as being kind of silly. Um, uh, maybe silly isn't the right word, but but fun. You no, know? I think silly is absolutely the. I mean, his like put the bunny down that sort of thing. I think very self consciously silly. But that doesn't help it for me. Like hmm. it, it's it's like oh, this is an intentional joke that I don't find funny. Um, I'm not amused by his performance the whole movie, except for like a couple things here and there, like a certain waving of the mullet. You know what I mean? <laughs> a couple times where he has like one-liners that are just utterly ridiculous. But when he gets off the bus and they give him that moment of the wind like blowing through his right. hair, that is—I mean—that's iconic. And I have to say, I still think that's hilarious to see. I guess my thing is that. Um, I don't know if this is totally true, but this level of, of action movie camp is just not in my wheelhouse. Um, if I was going to like an action movie for its uh, goofiness in a way, I I think I'd go older. I, there's just something about the mm. 90s that it just doesn't, you know, the things that appeal to me about the 90s are the more serious things, the more serious efforts. And something like this, it just doesn't, again... That's not to say I, I I dislike it like it's bad, but it's um his performance. I'm not like oh this is one of my favorite Nicolas Cage performances. It's like no, this is not the Cage that I'm here for. It's uh, it's interesting to hear you say that, if only because the fact that this movie doesn't take itself so seriously is I think one of the things that separates it from a lot of the action movies of that time period. And I find that some of those movies haven't aged quite as well as Con Air because of that. Um, but there's, I mean, this, there is a string of humor that goes throughout it. There's a lot of really great lines. I actually think that the writing in this movie is a pr at a pretty high level, uh, which is why I think some of these supporting performances kind of stick out because almost all of these actors get their moment, uh, for better or for worse. You said before that you didn't find a lot appealing about the John Malkovich. Was it the character or the performance that you didn't really connect to here? I think that's a good question. I think it's a little bit of both. Like the character is written so that John Malkovich can do a lot of yelling. Um, yes. Thus boiling John Malkovich down to his yell. And the appeal of John Malkovich for me is not just the intense yelling John Malkovich. You know what I mean? I like it. I like intense John Malkovich, but it's this whole performance feels for me very one note and mm. his, the menace of it 
feels kind of fake. Um, and I kind of, I, I think it fits the character, but I just, I think the idea that he's teamed up with Ving Rings' character and then continually has these like uh, casually racist comments just sure. feels it's designed to make sure the Ving Rings character is a hypocrite. And I found that just annoying. It just, there's a certain, uh, to me, smirk to that that I found off putting and not endearing. I think, I think that's very fair. One of the interesting things about this movie that, that kind of stuck out to me is this movie came out a few years before uh, the kind of style of fighting in movies changed. I think The Matrix is probably the big thing, and then followed by Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where it became a little bit more Hong Kong influence. But what's interesting about this movie is that there isn't a lot of fighting. There isn't even a lot of gunplay, necessarily. No. It's a big action movie. But the big action scenes in it tend to be large things crashing into other things and big explosions, which I actually don't think we see a lot of anymore. Not that we don't see movies with lots of explosions, but movies that are action movies, because this is clearly an action movie, that rely heavily on that as a mode, as opposed to a lot of one-on-one -on -one fighting that occurs. Nicolas Cage does get you know a few kicks and punches here and there, but this movie is not based around him out there individually kicking a lot of ass, like a Rambo-type movie. I think, though, when was the re-release in American theaters of Rumble in the Bronx? So, Rumble in the Bronx came out in 1994, I believe. But was that the big push? I think the big push was later, though, wasn't it? I Let's see. Okay, so, Rumble in the Bronx, you're right, came out in 1995, and that's when they had all the commercials with Ben Stein talking about Jackie Chan's injuries, and it was basically the big Jackie Chan push that made him a mainstream star. Right in the US right. was 1995. So post that, so that's 95, this is now 97, action movies without fighting were stupid to me. And mm. with a few exceptions, and there were a few, you know, um, but uh, the sort of big action humor of Men in Black was much more appealing to me, or the uh, farcical, over-the-top violence of Starship Troopers, Starship sure. Troopers was more interesting to me than a film like this in which we get a couple of fight scenes with Nick Cage where he looks stiff and unbelievable. And I'm sitting here mm -hmm. going, but Jackie Chan's alive. Like, Jackie Chan exists. You know what I mean? Like, once I had seen Rumble in the Bronx, it was like, well, every movie should have this then, you know? Maybe not to the level of Jackie Chan, but um, I think that's when I had really started to leave a lot of American action behind to search out all this uh, Hong Kong and uh, Japanese and whatever action movies that I didn't know anything about. And uh, really 98 or 99 was when I discovered uh, DV deals, which is a business in Philly that uh, really only had what I now know to be bootleg DVDs, but I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> uh, but it was like, they were part of a trading service where they were trading files to make these DVDs to sell to you that were just not available in the U S you know? Um, and so once I discovered DVD deals, it was like, why am I watching Con Air? I could be watching all these. You know what I mean? Like that the appeal of American action went down, came back up a little bit with the matrix, I guess. But that was a, that was like a blip. Like when the matrix happened, it was like, yeah, 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 this stuff. You know, like it, it felt... The, I mean, I mean, The Matrix was a movie that was so visibly and transparently influenced by the kind of movies that you did like right. at that time. That, that, that I mean, it, it felt like that was the merging of those, um, those sensibilities in a way that was very successful. And then it led a couple years later to things like The Musketeer. Do you remember that movie, The Musketeer? Oh, which God, was a, yeah. 
Three Musketeers type movie, except all the choreography was uh, Hong Kong based and all the stuntmen were, were from Hong Kong. So you had this mixture of weird martial arts fighting and musketeer style uh, story. Well, I was also thinking about what's the gun, gun fu movie that is that equilibrium? Yes. What year did that come out? That would have been 2001, mm, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyways, I don't want I don't want to get distracted with it by all this stuff, but it's it's all to say that there was a lot of changes happening in how people viewed martial arts and action. And for me, I, let me be clear, I wasn't becoming an expert because these movies were hard to find and the internet wasn't really an option. And so if if it wasn't at TV deals and I couldn't rent it at the local video store, I probably didn't see it till much later, but there were things that were getting through and what little I could find you know, the first time I saw the the killer was in '99, I think. Right. So, you know, that was two years. So at that point, and and I guess the other thing also that I don't know is clear to folks who are younger is that films, because of the VHS store, films were part of the conversation longer. So like, yeah. this movie came out in '97. In 99, people are still talking about Con Air. It's still part of the conversation because mm-hmm. it had come out on VHS. People are renting it. And so if you said to someone, oh, I'm into action, Con Air is going to be on their, their their tongue because it's something that they had probably just watched again recently. And for me, it was still around when I'm sitting here watching all this other stuff that I was like, yo, this is so this is on the next level. I don't know how I can take this other thing seriously. The, the, the director of this movie, Simon West, is... I think the kind of movie that he was best at making fell out of favor very quickly once the year 2000 hit. Um, and, you know, I think this was the heyday, the late 90s uh, of the music video director and, right. and uh, directors who transferred from making music videos like Michael Bay, like David Fincher to a certain extent as well, actually to a very large extent, who were some of them were able to transition into Hollywood movie making and others not so well. But Simon West really comes from that tradition. I don't know if you know this. Liam O'Donnell, this might interest you. Simon West directed the Rick Astley Never Gonna Give You Up video. I had no idea. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I mean, I'm basically Rickrolling you here on our very podcast. I'm into that. Like, I, I've always found the idea of the Rickroll funny because I'm like, this song <laughs> is kind of a jam, though. <laughs> uh, Liam, before we go on to the Steve Buscemi performance, any other performances in this movie? You mentioned you like John Cusack, but there's a lot of kind of character actors who show up here. Dave Chappelle has a very memorable, very early role for, I think, a lot of the the mainstream consciousness of him. This was the year before Half-Baked came out, I believe. Uh, any actors uh, jump out at you? I mean, they're all memorable, right? That's part of the thing is that, like, everyone with a name wants you to remember their name in this movie. Um, but uh, as far as ones I like, uh, you know, I, I actually kind of forget. The, what is the name of the real hard-ass DEA guy? He's usually British, right? Oh, you're talking about uh, Cole Meany from uh, Star Trek. Love Cole Meany. Uh, and mm. I, even though he's the, in some sense, one of the clear villains of this movie till the end when he finally sure. admits he was wrong. Um, I love that, though. I think he's very good at that. I love Cole Meany yelling at people as one of the things from the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s that I enjoy is him just being like, kind of I mean, I mean granted he's more endearing on star trek but um i've seen him in a, a couple movies now where he plays a gangster or an angry cop or something like that that i appreciate and so seeing him i know you're not a big star trek fan liam would that be correct that you don't really you don't know a lot about star trek here's my thing doug 
in theory, I don't know a lot about Star Trek, but there's actually another region between Trekkie and Normie, Normie sure. that people mm-hmm. my age fall into because Star Trek The Next Generation was in syndication. It was on all the time. So on one hand, I don't care about Star Trek. On the other hand, I've seen, I'm pretty sure, every episode <laughs> of The Next Generation, some of them multiple times. I've seen almost every episode of Deep Space Nine. I've certainly seen one season of Voyager. And yet, if you were like, okay, we've watched all these shows, I'm going to quiz you about them, I'd be like, I don't remember, man. I don't have time to remember all that. It just was on, so I watched it. So like, I have a lot of fond affection for it, but then you get folks who are so invested that they are ready to argue you know it's it's not dissimilar to my relationship to sports you know i could watch when i was younger i don't really do it anymore because we don't have tv anymore but when i was younger and it was on tv i could watch an eagles game and be like okay i understand what's happening but the idea that i would get into a conversation about it and remember facts and figures is like offensive to me like no i that's not who i i don't want that that's not a thing i want in my life that's how i feel about star trek like yeah i know who q is i know what the borg is i get it but like People who are naming episode titles and stuff, I can't with that. That's just too much for me to invest my time and energy. Well, Cole Meany was, uh, for those who don't know, was a cast member on Star Trek The Next Generation. And he had a fairly small role on that, though it grew as the series went along. And then he became one of the main cast members on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And one of the kind of notorious things about his character, O'Brien, on Deep Space Nine is that every season there would be an episode called... The, well, not officially called, but sort of uh, unofficially in the fandom, would be known as an O'Brien Must Suffer episode. So there would be an episode centered entirely on his character, and he would be put through some absolutely horrible things because, almost certainly, Colmini is an amazing actor, and he's able to sell these really dramatic... He's also a very kind of down-to-earth actor. These kind of really heightened dramatic moments. There's a very notorious episode, a really great one, where he is uh, put in prison for like decades and decades and decades, and then you find out at the end that it was all in his mind the entire time. And then, because of the continuity of these type of series, he just goes on with his life afterwards, even though he mentally has been in a prison cell with all these traumatic things happening for years and years. Anyway, I'm just... Saying that because I don't want to make it come off as being insulting that I love this actor, but I do think that even though I like the the character here, I do think his accent is particularly shaky in this movie. Oh, uh, I didn't know. I didn't pay attention. It doesn't. When you've got <laughs> Nick Cage doing whatever the fuck he's doing, yeah, exactly. Those are pretty broad. <laughs> uh, I also wanted to lift up. It's a small role, but I wanted to lift up MC Gainey because I like yes. him a lot, and I think Me that um, you know the moment where he is just willing to listen to Poe and fly the plane is like one of the few moments of humanity allowed to these caricatures. You know, they're all walking around, chewing the scenery, being crazy, not having human emotions. And then the fact that uh, Swamp Swamp Thing just goes, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll land the plane. They're clearly going to shoot us out of the air. Was like, oh, see, someone's making a rational decision because no one else does almost the entire film, you know? So him, him actually making that decision, I've always kind of been like, yeah, that's good. Let's just land the the plane and move on with our lives, please. I, I just want to get your take on one other actor before we move on to Steve Buscemi, which is Rinaldi Santiago, who plays Sally Can't Dance, the effeminate, I guess you would call them the homosexual character in the movie. It's played for laughs. How do you feel about that character in this movie? Well, I mean, I don't love it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't love that, it, you know, it's one of, uh, Rinaldi Santiago's like most well-known performances, by the way, uh-huh. that's a real bummer to me. Um, 
the whole laugh of it, like in prison, there are people who are not gender conforming in some way. Ha ha ha. It's like, that's not fun. That's not a thing I like to have in my movie, you know? And I think it's a reminder of the, it's a big fun movie. So it doesn't really matter to some extent, but the movie is, should not be mistaken for trying to humanize prisoners. Nicholas Cage is a unicorn in this film. He is the rare person who found themselves in prison, but is actually human. And right. the movie really wants to make clear that except for magically his diabetic cellmate, there are no other humans on this plane. You know, they, they really want to get that home to you. And the fact that this character is used. Now, I do appreciate that the character is not shown as in too many other movies as weak or cowardly. You know, mm. uh, the this very uh, homophobic, possibly transphobic character uh, is still tough. And, I, you know, that's the one little bit of respect that they're given. Like, mm-hmm. OK, they're still on board. They're still someone who can be relied on. But the whole thing of it, like the plane la- lands and the first thing the character does is go to find a dress. It's just stupid. It's just so yeah. it's so stupid and reductive. And honestly, it's funny because there's a lot. I think we could say sort of about this movie politically that would be, I think, challenging and maybe a waste of time because it's not the point of the movie. But hopefully everyone watching it is bummed out like that. That part mm-hmm. should be so obviously bad that we're all on board that it's bad. Does that make sense? Like, absolutely. In some ways, the, I mean, it's in some ways it's the part of this movie that has aged the most because I think almost anybody, at least anyone of conscience that would watch the movie now, it would stand out to them. It's like. What are you doing with this character? Yeah, I, I would hope so. Liam, let's talk about the actor Steve Buscemi, who plays Garland the Marietta Mangler Green in the movie Con Air. Now, this is a showcase role for Steve Buscemi. It's not a big role, necessarily, but the movie basically stops about halfway through to focus entirely on this character. He's very kind of mild-mannered looking in a, in a Steve Buscemi way, but is meant to and suggested to be an incredibly dangerous, on almost a Hannibal Lecter-esque um, serial killer. Right. What do you think of him in this movie? He gets a lot of laughs in the movie. He's uh, He is a character that's played for laughs, though he also gets a moment of threat where he has he basically walks away from the carnage, goes to a, uh, a, a neighborhood and sits with a little girl and plays with uh, dolls and has a little tea party with her. It's even suggested at one point that he might have murdered her, but then it's shown that that wasn't the case at all. What do you think of this character? Uh, do you feel conflicted at all with the idea that he gets the humanity that other characters are not given? I mean... The plus for us as a host of this show is that yes. I've been wondering for a while when Steve Buscemi would have his Eric Roberts moment <laughs> in that this is a performance that hopefully in retrospect he might feel conflicted about, you know, because um, that's how I feel. I feel like the humor of it doesn't work. Him being like a scary, mild-mannered serial killer is great. I actually think it's yes. super insightful. The entire sequence with the girl is cheap. It's a cheap pop. It's stupid. It only exists to mess with you and to have a break for the... I mean, literally, just functionally, there's too much stuff going on. And we need something to cut away to draw out this action a little more so it's not just a constant barrage on your senses. That's the only reason that exists, really. Um, and then the the what it leads to is it being okay that his character escapes and sort of has this other thing. It sort of adds this 
maybe not quite redemption, but other thing to it. And but it's part sure. it's part of something that leads us to our Dexters and our whatevers. Our mm. this uh romantic romanticization. I don't know if I pronounced that mm. right, but who cares? Our romanticizing of the psychopath, our love affair with the psychopath. Um, the idea that these mentally divergent folks who uh, resort to violence of various kinds, that uh, that's cool. That's a fun thing, you know, and that, you know, the fact that Garland Green decides not to murder this one child in this one case, it's like they, he might as well be redeemed. He might as well be a new man, you know, mm-hmm. um, all of that is just unnecessary. Now, that's not to take away from Buscemi's performance, though I will say he's clearly being directed to play it uh you know low key it's it's understated yeah it's not he's not licking his chops or anything he's making wry almost funny jokes you know um i always think about liam how in some of the episodes that we've done so far you've brought up and rightly that that steve buscemi even though he's very unique looking is not an unattractive man yeah. but i do feel like the 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 general consensus around this time period in hollywood is this man looks like a creep so we're going to make him play creeps. Yeah, and he looks like the he looks like the kind of guy that would be a surprisingly dangerous person. You know what I mean? Like mm. the way that in real life, there's no suggestion that John Malkovich is more intimidating than Steve Buscemi. You know, right? Um, and yet in this film, it's like clearly Malkovich is intimidating and scary, whereas Buscemi, it's a surprise. It's like he's a wolf in sheep's clothing or something, and it's. It's ridiculous. It's, uh, you know, uh, again, I'm making it more negative just because the way, because it's such a 90s thing to have, like, look at this wild card. But A, why have the dumb wild card when you do nothing with it? It has no impact on the plot whatsoever. It's just there to be, like, a fun, edgy thing. It's the it's the fedora that the film doesn't need. And that, like, just bums me out. It's just annoying, you know? And, and that's nothing to take away from... Uh, Steve, uh, I think uh, his performance is is fine, um, but I'd rather him be doing something else. I'd rather him have some other role in this movie, uh, and especially one that would allow him to bring out more of his manic energies and less of this like I'm menacing because I'm not doing anything vibe that I just you know just doesn't seem that cool to me. I like that the performance and the character exists, but only because of its representativeness. Of the level of mainstream notoriety that Steve Buscemi had at this right. time period, which is that, you know, this role, if not written for him, when they cast him, they knew exactly what they wanted to do with it. They knew that this was going to be a a character that when people left the theater, they would remember and I think was fun and interesting. But it always really does kind of remind me of how when you're watching certain movies, that these characters only exist in terms of the information that's given to you and what you're shown on screen. And if you, you're not meant to think about it outside of that, this is a guy who is a serial killer and you're told that he like once what drove all this distance with someone's head as a hat. Uh, He's he, you know, there's only these kind of hints at the carnage that he's done, but because we see him in one kind of tender moment, if you call it that, then that is enough to redeem him where if they decided to spend like 10 minutes going through the bloodshed that he's been responsible for or showing him murdering an innocent person, then that character's whole arc completely goes out the window because now you know just enough to, for it to be, you know, creepy that he's out on the streets as opposed to, oh, that's funny, he's in Las Vegas gambling around all of these people and could murder someone at any moment. 
it really reminds me of this is going to be a stretch but go with me on this it reminds mm-hmm. me of the um the outside of the canon responses to uh joker and harley quinn sure there's this idea that like uh joker and harley quinn's sort of attraction and uh uh codependent relationship with each other somehow uh clears joker of his craziness or at least it's a moment you know the it, it, there's this idea of the like crazy psychopath uh the person who's out of control the person who's truly violent and whatever but like they're nice to you you know what i mean and, and absolutely there's a sense here of that of like oh maybe there's something more to buscemi but then like also he could kill you know again it, it it's it's all the aspects of Dexter I didn't like. And so And once again, I, I, not to bring up the racialized aspect of it, but I mean the fact is, you know, it's also reflective of the fact that when you hear about a killing and particularly a white killer that you get all of these articles afterwards about how he was this pillar of the community and he did all these great things and it's just there's there is I think a natural maybe not natural, but certainly a mainstream view of killers and wanting to romanticize them as long as they are the right shade. It bums me out, and we haven't learned from it. And if if no one sees a connection between this guy and the mm, sort of like basement dwelling, idolizing school shooter sort of alt right <laughs> thing, I would not be surprised if there is some alt right troll whose screen name is Garland Green out there somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think it's just a result of a not exactly healthy part of our culture. And again. If we if he was important to the narrative, I'd feel a little different about the character because it's like, yeah, it, it's weird, but at least it makes sense. But he's just such a an unnecessary element that plays into a certain mindset that it just bums me out a little bit. I know that there are people listening right now who are thinking that we're taking this way too seriously. And to a certain extent, we probably are. But it's these kind of insidious things and big Hollywood movies that kind of they do filter down into the mindset that people have and I do think that there's a case to be made there that's sadly I mean look I let, let me mm. and just to respond to that folks who feel that way like yes Nicolas Cage has an awesome mullet Ving Rhames is tough whatever whatever but uh, I don't think it's worth focusing only on the fun cultural parts to pretend like there was no other cultural results from this film I just think that's silly you know as much as I'll repost the gif of Nicolas Cage's fucking mullet in the wind over and over again because it is funny it is really great that that exists in the world and I love it Uh, I'm not going to ignore that like the focus of our show the guy we're meant to pay attention to is in a role that I think is like kind of a bummer I think overall Con Air does hold up fairly well. I do think it's an extremely entertaining movie. It's also a very easy movie to watch, uh, particularly if you ignore some of the elements that we have just talked about over the last 45 minutes or so. I do also think that it's representative of where Steve Buscemi was in the eye of mainstream Hollywood at this time period. And this would not be the end of it. Uh, This is probably approaching, you know, it's, it's 
uh, around that Fargo period where he had his mo- the most amount of credibility that as an actor maybe he ever had, and that would last into the early 2000s as well, which isn't to say that he doesn't have that credibility now, but, you, you know, it, he maybe he's a little past that period where he'd be showing up in, say, Armageddon or something like that. You just watch. Next summer he'll be in, like, the biggest movie of the entire year. Uh, but overall, I would still recommend Con Air as a movie, and while I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for just the Steve Buscemi performance, uh, in the context of his career as a whole, uh, this is the kind of movie that hopefully gave him enough freedom as an actor to then be able to be um, much more picky in terms of the roles that he could take afterwards. I'll agree with that, and I do think it's an important moment in his career. I would still recommend, if for some reason someone's listening and they haven't seen it, I still think it's worth seeing. I just don't understand. I, I think there's other... I think a lot of the, the, the affection for this is related to Nicolas Cage more than Steve Buscemi. And I just think there's other over-the-top Cage performances that I prefer to this one. I do think that the simple morality of it is something that I still respond to. And maybe that's in the same way that I have a lot of nostalgia for a lot of 80s action movies, which had a similar view of its characters. You know, it always has that moment where you find out that... Uh, a guy who uh, seemed somewhat mild-mannered actually is this incredible badass, and then that person is kind of the one person that everyone has to rely on. I do. There's a part of me that instinctively likes that kind of structure, that kind of Rambo-ish or Passenger 57-ish, even though that was the early 90s type structure. Um, and so th- it's something that I still respond to, and I still find a lot of the supporting performances. And honestly, the style of this movie is something that I really enjoy, even though it was very much of that kind of late 90s look with The Rock, with Armageddon, that sort of thing. I actually like this movie, I think, more than The Rock or Armageddon, yet both of those are in the Criterion Collection. This one isn't. How about that? Um, Liam, what are we going to talk about on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids? Well, speaking of things that appealed to me more in my youth than Con Air, (laughs) we're going to talk about a movie that I watched way too many times as a 10, 11, 12-year-old, and that's Abel Ferrara's King of New York. King of New York from the year 1990, directed by Abel Ferrara with an amazing cast. A movie I have not watched in many years, even though I'm a big Ferrara fan. Yeah, on the next episode of How You Do, Fellow Kids, it's Abel Ferrara's King of New York. Liam, if people want to check out more about Cinema Smorgasbord, more about How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, they can go ahead and follow us on Twitter. It's Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G. They can find uh-huh. us online, cinemasmorgasbord.com. They can, of course, find us and a whole entire family of amazing podcasts, as well as some stellar writing, and hopefully soon, some merchandise, over what? at cinepunkspunx.com. And Cinepunks is on uh, uh, social media as Cinepunks everywhere you can find it. Just C I N E P U N X. The only place we're not is TikTok. Sorry about that, y'all. Um, of course, not yet. Not yet. Uh, of course, they could follow us uh, individually. Uh, probably you would be a better bet. So that's uh, at Doug underscore Tilly. And how do they spell that, Doug? T-I-L-L-E-Y, and you can find Liam on there, at Liam Rules, that's R-U-L-Z. Why don't you go over and uh, give him a uh, happy belated birthday message. I'm sure Liam would appreciate that very much. You can also find my other podcast, No Budget Nightmares, at uh, No Budget Podcast on Twitter and at NoBudgetPodcast.com. We're hopefully soon going to be returning with a lot of shot-on-video and micro-budget cinema. Uh, But with that said, Liam, it's time for us to wrap things up here in the Steve Buscemi Lab. We'll be back again very soon with Abel Ferrara's King of New York. Good night, everybody. Night. One, two, three. Turn it up.